Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We're in this series called Impact. It's, it's all centered basically on a, a, a little passage of scripture in Colossians 4. Paul is writing to the Colossian church to encourage new believers. And we've been looking at various people there in Colossians 4 that Paul kind of calls out by name and says, you know, it's like this one says hi and this one's with me and this one, you know, sends his greeting. And, and we've been looking at those various people and just learning what we can from, from their story in this series called Impact. And, and it is there in Colossians 4 that Paul mentions Luke. And he says in Colossians 4 verse 14, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Now I would just have you notice two things right off the top, right before we get started this morning. We're going to talk about Luke, but we're told two things about Luke right when we get started. First of all, Luke was a, a dear friend to Paul, and the second part of that is Luke is a doctor. Uh, now, so y- y- that's going to bring some things to the table. You know as well as I do that doctors are kind of meticulous about details. They, they, you know, if you're a good doctor, you're going to keep good records. Um, you're pretty well educated if you're a doctor. So, so Luke is not just your average guy. He's not just some random figure. We know some things about Luke, and, and it's my hope today that that uh, what we're going to talk about will build your faith. If you, if you grew up in church and you grew up handling the Bible for a while, you, you kind of know who Luke is and you know that there's a New Testament by the same name and you, or, uh, there's a book in the New Testament by the same name called Luke. Um, I'm going to show you a table of contents. Uh, the, the, the New Testament starts with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those four men uh, write accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, you, you might be hearing that thinking, Brett, you know, I've been going to church my whole life. I know all this. But here's what you need to understand. We've got people that come to church here that have never cracked a Bible. And when I stand up and I start talking like this, they're learning for the first time how to navigate their scriptures and how to, who these people are and what did they write. So, so for their benefit, sometimes we just kind of, we, we get fairly elemental, but I want everybody to understand who these guys were, and Luke was one of the four who wrote one of the four gospel accounts that talks about the life, the ministry, the miracles, just the life of Jesus. Um, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a diamond has different facets. It's, you know, four different facets, four different viewpoints of the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, Luke wrote one of those four books, but also Luke is believed to be the author of the book of Acts, and Acts tells us the Acts of the Apostles. It tells us what happened when Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and then he ascends into heaven. What happens next? What, wh- who did what? How did the church get started? Who traveled where? And we learn all of that in the book of Acts. Luke is a pretty important character in Scripture. And as we talk about Luke today, the word that I want you to associate with him is the word doubt. Not that Luke was a doubter. Luke was not a doubter. But Luke seeks to address those who might be among us this morning who have some doubts. Um, now, maybe that's never been a big issue for you. Maybe you've never been somebody that, that doubted. You, you, maybe you just read it and, you know, you say, Brett, I, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Okay, that's great for you, but there are people who've walked in here this morning, they're not so sure. Um, you may have been dragged in here by somebody like come listen to him talk you know you need you need some Jesus you know something like that Um, I just hopefully by the time we're done today 
you've been given something for your intellect. I tell people all the time, you do not have to check your brain at the door to believe in Jesus. You don't. There are very good reasons. There's great evidence that supports what we believe about Christ. And I, I tell people this. Uh, you may not know this. This is free this morning. We're a full-service church. You're going to get a little free information this morning. The man who mapped the human genome. You with me on that? Like, smart dude, right? Man that mapped the human genome believes in Jesus. Now, if a man that smart can believe in Jesus, a guy like me shouldn't have a whole lot of trouble. But still, we have some doubts. Once in a while, questions arise in our minds, and we're like, man, I don't know, that doesn't make sense, or I, I can't wrap my head around that. Um, I understand that there are people in the room this morning, if you've grown up in church, you just need to know that there are people around you who did not. And, and they don't know everything you know, and sometimes, even if they do, their faith is, is a little shakier, and they may have struggled from time to time. And, and they might even say, Brett, I, don't, I just don't even know what I believe anymore. I don't know if I believe. And I used to have solid faith, and I'm not so sure anymore. And for any number of reasons, you can kind of have what my good friend Rondell Ramsey refers to as a faith quake. A faith quake. That's where something happens, and it shakes the, bed, the bedrock of your faith, and it shakes it so much that you're, you thought you believed, but now there's some doubt that's in there, and you're trying to reconcile that and figure that out. Well, that's okay, okay? This is a safe place for you to do that, and I seek to, to help you with some of your faith quakes. But those faith quakes come from a number of different places. One of them might be from disappointment, where you needed God to do something for you, or you thought you needed God to do something for you, and you prayed fervently for it, and it didn't happen the way you wanted it to happen. And I've seen more than one person do that and just walk away from faith because God didn't come through for them. That's kind of the way they said it. God didn't come through for me. He didn't, he didn't hear my prayer. He didn't answer my thing. He didn't, I needed him and he wasn't there. And the, the earth kind of moves underneath their faith and, and they have a faith quake. Sometimes it's people that go off to the university. And they have a professor that's talking about, okay, this is what the, you know, it's a Bible class. And they're saying, okay, this guy wrote this. This is what we think he means, but some people think that he means this, and we're not really sure, and these two things are in conflict. And, you know, after a while, your head just starts kind of swimming, and it can create an element of doubt. And you can start to say to yourself, man, I thought I believed. I thought I had that nailed down, but now I'm not so sure anymore. And something as simple as going to a university classroom can sometimes bring about a faith quake. Or maybe it was that, that you looked up to somebody. They claimed to be a Jesus follower, and you looked up to them, and they, they weren't perfect. Well, here's a hint, Leroy. None of us are perfect, right? Like, none of us have got that figured out, but, but you, you really pinned a lot on this person, male or female, and you really looked up to them, and then they, they weren't everything that you thought they should be, and it caused the ground to kind of shake underneath your faith. Listen, I understand that. that there are also certain temperaments that are just kind of prone to skepticism that you know you might be that kind of temperament that just basically says hey you're gonna have to show me okay i don't you're not fooling me you're gonna have to prove it to me you're gonna have to talk a long time um i need to know that it's really really reliable and and, and it's that's really the question that we're trying to wrestle to the ground this morning and the message that i'm going to get we're going to get from luke is there is reason to believe there's reason to believe if you're here this morning and you find yourself whispering brett Give me a good reason. 
Just give me a good reason, okay? I'm going to give you the reason, uh, one at least, this morning. We're going to look at three different roles in the life of Luke. And the first one has to do with the fact that Luke was an assistant. He was an assistant. If you take a a look at a map real quick, um, Paul took three different missionary journeys, and you can read about those in the book of Acts. These happened decades after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, about 28 years Uh, 20 to 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Paul travels throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh, He's in the Roman Empire. He's stopping at major cities along the way. He's telling people about Jesus. Churches are being established, and he leaves those in the hands of people to, to run those churches. The map you see here is the second missionary journey of Paul, and we find this in the book of Acts, and he, he crosses mainland Turkey, and he's going to end up in Troas. The map's a little washed out, but if you see Galatia there, um, he's going to travel up. There's a little arcing line, and then he comes up to Troas just on the Aegean coast, right there by the Aegean Sea. Um, he crosses mainland Turkey. He comes into the coast on, uh, in Troas, and, and it, things start to get frustrating for him. He, he's, you know, he's enjoyed some success He's kind of had a pretty good clue about where he was going and what he was doing, but now things are not as clear, and, and some of the doors are being shut in their face, and things aren't as successful as maybe he would have liked, and now they're wondering, what's next? We're just kind of confused. We don't really know what we're supposed to do. So in Acts chapter 16, we find these words. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia, and Galatia. And then we drop down to verse 8. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Now, if you notice, I didn't highlight the second part of that. I should have. Um, I want you to pay attention to the pronouns that we're going to look at today, specifically there in verse 8. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Something is going to happen for them, and it's kind of weird, and, and it probably didn't happen for you last night, okay? Or if it did, we should have special prayer service for you after church, okay? Because Paul is going to be, he's going to get a vision. He's going to see a, a, a dream or something. Verse 9, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul is in Troas, And Macedonia is to the west of Troas. You would have to get on a boat and cross the sea, the Aegean Sea, to get there. They don't know what to do. They're kind of confused. So, so, you know, basically, Paul sees this vision of this man that says, come to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10, we read this. After Paul had seen the vision, there's going to be a pronoun change. In Troas, Luke joins the team. The the pronouns in the book of Acts uh, shift. It goes from they to we, back to they, and then back to we. And if you really pay attention, you can figure out where Luke is on these journeys and where Paul is without Luke on these journeys. So we read in verse 10, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, meaning Macedonia. Verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight from Samothrace, and the next day we went on a trip. We went on to Neapolis. Verse 12, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. And if you were to ask Luke, what are you doing right now, Luke? What's, what's up with you? He would say, 
I am an assistant. I'm an assistant. I'm assisting Paul. The leaders of the team are Paul and Silas. There are two people with them. There's Timothy and there's Luke. And both of those guys are acting as assistants. Now, if you keep reading in the book of Acts in chapter 16, what you find is that there's this dramatic story that unfolds. There's this young girl. She's a slave girl. These men own her. And she is possessed by some kind of evil spirit, some kind of demon, some kind of thing that I I couldn't probably explain to you. But through this thing, she is able to foretell the future. And so, um, you know, these guys own this girl and they charge a price so that you can talk to this girl and she tells you your future. And these dudes are getting rich off this girl. Well, Paul shows up into town. He encounters this girl, recognizes there's something not quite right about her throws the demon out of her, and and makes these guys mad. So they drag him in front of the magistrate. There's no trial, nothing like that. They throw them in prison, and Paul and Silas will have their coats removed. They will be bound and bent over, and they will be whipped with Roman whips, and they are going to spend the night in stocks. Now, I just want you to, you know, I just went through that, and I said that kind of fast. I want you to stop, and I want you to think about what's happening to them. They're stripped, they're tied and whipped, and they're put in stocks to stay in prison overnight. Just let that sink in. The next day, Paul and Silas get out, and they continue their journey. Now, if you had had your back beaten with Roman whips, and you had been put in stocks and kept in prison overnight, and you had just come out, Is there a particular service or a particular trade or a particular skill set that you would wish that one of your friends had, like maybe that of a doctor? Luke the doctor. Luke is with Paul a lot, and as you see stuff happening to Paul, you can't help but think that uh, Paul has a lot of long-term medical needs and medical issues. And I'm going to read you a passage out of 2 Corinthians 11 here in a minute. Um, I'm going to, there's a reason I'm reading it, but this is kind of a side note. Um, To me, what I'm about to read to you is one of the best reasons to believe in Jesus. Let me explain. Um, When I was a little boy, I lied to my daddy. And the result of that was that he took off his belt and he spanked my bottom, right? Because he was trying to get me to understand when you lie, pain is associated with that. Now, you, you might not do that to your kids, and that's fine. My daddy spanked me. I'm glad he spanked me. It was not abuse. It was discipline, and I'm okay with it. And, uh, but he was letting me know, don't lie to me. So the next time I had the opportunity to lie to my father, do you think I lied, or do you think I told the truth? I told the truth. Okay, so with that in mind, Paul is going to experience this encounter with Christ. He's going to see the resurrected Christ, and he is is going to start traveling the the known world to tell people about Jesus. Get in the back of your Bible sometime, look at the maps, and look at all the cities that, that Paul went to, going into these cities, probably a lot of times not knowing anybody, talking to people about Jesus, bringing people to the Lord, establishing churches, All along the way, this is hard travel, he's on boats, he's traveling by caravan, he's probably walking a great distance. 
Think about what Paul did once he encountered Jesus and how it changed his life. And now I'm going to read to you some of the mistreatment that Paul goes through. And I just want you to think to yourself, would I do that if what I was preaching was a lie? I mean, would I go through all that for just some made-up, concocted story? I can tell you right now, if I, if I got treated the way Paul got treated one time, and, and what I was preaching was a lie, I would walk away, I would never talk about it again, right? Paul is convinced because Paul knows what he saw on that road to Damascus, and so these things just happened to him as he traveled around telling people about Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely. When I say the word flogged, you hear that and you think that's not a big deal. That's a big deal. Okay, very, very painful. Very painful. Flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. That is the synagogue beating. What that is is they wouldn't hit you 40 times. If you hit somebody over 40 times, you could be beaten. So they always stopped at 39 so that they didn't go over it. They were always great rule keepers. And so if they thought, if you talked in the, in the synagogue and they thought what you said was heretical, they would take you out and they would give you a synagogue beating, 39 lashes. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Okay, again, a man that's not telling the truth. Would you do this? Would you go through this for something you did not absolutely know was the truth? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Now, I love going to the beach. I love going to the beach. I get my watch out. I time those waves, make sure they're coming in on time. I love that. In the daytime. At night, the beach wigs me out. Like, it just freaks me out. I look out there. I can't see anything. It's, it looks expansive. It, it, it's, it's, I know it's deep. I know it's dark. I don't know what's in that water. It just looks different at night. And I'm like, I don't want any part of that. And if you told me I was going to spend an, a night in the open water, no thank you. Okay? No thank you. I just asked this question. After all that, you think Paul might have been in need of a doctor? That synagogue beating is 39 lashes. Your robe is removed. You are bent over, tied down. A whip is snapped across your back 39 times. It dices and slices your skin and your tissue. 39 lashes. Paul said it happened five times. It happens again. That's 78 happens a third time. That's 117. We're told by Paul that it happens five times. He gets 195 synagogue lashes. So when you hear that number, what I want you to think is 195 scars on his back. You think that wouldn't hurt? You think Paul might have had some need of a doctor traveling with him? And Luke is there, and Luke is offering his assistance. Now, here's the question. What is an assistant? When you're an assistant, your job is basically to make someone else successful. That's what it means to be a, an assistant. You might be a surgical assistant, uh, you know, an administrative assistant. You might be an assistant teacher, an assistant coach. Your best 
Your job is to do your best to make someone else successful. When you're an assistant, that's your job. In sports, there's a stat that gets kept. It's called the assist. In, in basketball, when we talk about an assist, we're not talking about the one who actually shoots the shot. We're talking about the one who makes the pass and makes it possible for someone else to make the shot. Just for the sports junkies in the room this morning, trivia question, do you have any idea who the NBA leader all-time is in assists? Do you have any idea? John Stockton. Very good. Now, I asked Siri, so you know it's right, right? Because I asked Siri. I asked Siri, how many assists did John Stockton have? You know what the number is? Check this out. 15,806 assists. Here, I'm not going to score, you score. Had somebody walking out the door uh, in the first service, and they said, yeah, and the mailman was on the receiving end of almost all those uh, Carl Malone was the mailman, played for the Jazz. John Stockton and Carl Malone were a great duo. And so here's, the, here's something to think about. 15,800, that's almost 1,600 assists, uh, times two at least. So there's two points on the end of every one of those assists, maybe three. So John Stockton is responsible in the NBA for not just the points that he scored, which were in the thousands, but responsible for the assist that he doled out to someone else to the tune of right around 32,000, probably a little more than that, points. Stockton was the scoring leader. Um, Steve Nash and Jason Kidd are a close second and third. Some of you right now, that's your role. You're an assistant. Here's my advice to you. Bring your very best to the table every day. If your job is to assist someone else, if your job is to make someone else look good, embrace that opportunity. Do the very best you can to help someone else to shine. How beautiful is it that God would have you in a place where the very best you bring to the table enables someone else to shine? I would argue that's very good for your soul. Someone else succeeds when you succeed. I think that's a beautiful thing. There are likely some people in the room this morning as well who have a bunch of people assisting you. You're the boss. You're the one in charge. You're the one that looks good when everybody else does their job. Can I just remind you that you have people that are giving their best to help you and, and it's just really important that, that you not allow yourself to become arrogant and demanding it's really important that you not forget those people. It's really important that you, you encourage them and you thank them and you're gracious to them as they try to help you. Your best response to the people around you is humility and gratitude. Don't be arrogant. Don't be demanding. Have the humility to say, I could never have succeeded without these people feeding me the ball. I, it makes me look good but it's really not about me. I have a great team that helps me do things. Express gratitude for the people who set you up for success. Paul didn't spread the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire all by himself. He had a whole team of people that were with him going from city to city to help people understand who Jesus was. His team at this point included Silas and Timothy and his dear friend Luke. And you say, okay, Brett, this is awesome. Great, you're, you're telling us about John Stockton, that's cool. You tell us about Luke, that's cool. But what's the reason to believe part? You said we were going to have a reason to believe. Uh, we're going to get to that. 
Here's the second role that Luke plays. Luke plays the role of note taker. He's a note taker. In Acts 17, we read this. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they, pronoun shift, came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now Luke is not with them here. We don't really know why. We are not told why. And, and he's either, he either stays in Philippi or he returns to Troas. You say, Brett, man, come on, get to, the, get to the showing us all this stuff, you know? I just want you to notice, as Luke writes all this, I want you to notice the detail. Pay attention to the detail. They passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Somebody is taking notes. Luke is going to rejoin Paul on this third trip. It picks up in Miletus, and I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 21. And again, pay attention to the detail. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyra, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Luke, <laughs> buddy, why all the detail? Does it really matter that you sailed to the south or the, to the north of Cyprus? I mean, is it really all that important? Why the detail? And my answer to that is the detail in, in Luke's case is the same reason you give detail in your stories. When you tell a story, you ever been telling a story and you get hung up on a detail? You say something like, you know, it was about 6.30. Well, maybe it wasn't 6.30. It might have been, I think it was 6. And you look at your husband. Was it 6 or 6.30? And he's like, come on, tell the story. Right? But the reason, the reason you stop down on that detail is because you are trying to communicate to the person you're talking to, I was there. This really happened. I'm going to give you some detail to verify the fact that what I'm telling you is the truth. So Luke wants you to see the accuracy of the trip, and the accuracy comes with this kind of reliability. I was there. We set out from a ship. We passed to the south or to the north of Cyprus. We, you know, we, we saw it go by. That's where they took off the cargo. He's given us all this detail. The detail makes the material more reliable and therefore more trustworthy. See, what the book of Acts does not say is, well, there was this guy named Paul, and one time he went off to this city, and he told some people some stuff, and then he went to another city, and he told some people some stuff. No. What city? Where are they? Who's with them? Who are they talking to? Why did they go there? How long did they stay there? Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, gives us all that detail. Here's just a little statistic for you. I just find this interesting. There are 50 different cities mentioned in the book of Acts. 50 different cities. Paul's letting, or Luke is letting you know the details. It's pretty likely that by the time Luke is writing this, this is about um, three decades after the resurrection, it's fairly likely that as, as Luke is writing this, that there have been, there's been some misinformation, there's been some skepticism that has arisen about the story and the life and the veracity of the truth that's been told about Jesus, and it's likely that there are a fair amount of people who do not believe the story of Jesus. So Luke understands, I need to be reliable. I need to be accurate. See, we do not have a corner on 
the market of skepticism in the 21st century. We think that we're the ones that are skeptics. There was skepticism in the first century. Not everybody believed the story. Luke gives us places, he gives us times, he gives us names. He, he is so thorough that we can develop a travel map based on what Luke says to us. He's saying, listen, I was there. These are the facts, they are accurate, they're reliable, you can trust this material. There is a reason to believe what I'm telling you is the truth and that it is accurate. I want to take you back to the map. Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. He's going to spend about two years in prison there in a town called Caesarea. It's not far from Jerusalem. And then toward the end of Acts, Luke will travel with him again. And it is here that you find this very detailed travel record, which is going to include a shipwreck. And they, they end up in Italy, in Rome. Uh, Luke is with Paul in Rome. And Paul writes the letter to the Colossian church when he, when he says, Our dear friend, Luke the doctor. Paul's going to get out of prison. And then in 66 AD, they're going to put him back into prison toward the end of his life. He's under the persecution of Nero. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is talking about all the people that have left him. And he's kind of depressed. And it's, it's, it's kind of a sad uh, exchange. And he's talking about, you know, this one left me. This one has gone off to this city. And, 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 he, and it's here that he says, only Luke is with me. Luke is about accuracy. Luke is about reliability. He is about dependability. He is about believability. This is three decades after the resurrection, and no doubt there's already a fair amount of fabrication and misinformation about what happened with Jesus. And a skeptic is going to ask the question, what can I believe and what can I not believe? What is true and what is false? What sounds reliable, what sounds like fiction, and what sounds like nonfiction? Which brings me to the third role that Luke played, and that is that of researcher. Back to the table of contents. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know that Luke wrote the book of Luke. That's pretty obvious. But then you come to the book of Acts, and that's where we've spent most of our time is in the book of Acts. But, but I want to spend a little time talking about the gospel of Luke and the story of Jesus and the gospel of Luke. Do you know why... Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke? Do you know who it was written to? Do you know the motive behind why he wrote the book of Luke? Before you get to any of the stories of Jesus' life, before he tells you about anything great that happened, the first thing that you find is this preface, and it's about four verses long, and Luke basically says, this is why I'm writing. And he's writing to a Roman official named Theopolis. And he says, this is, this, I, you know, I've, this is why I've taken the time to write down this account of the life of Jesus. I want to read it to you. It's the first four chapters of the book of Luke. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by one, by those who from the, the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. You would expect a doctor to write an orderly account. I, I've decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke says, Listen, I interviewed the eyewitnesses, I did the research. I carefully investigated all of this 
so that I could look you in the eye and tell you that the things that you've been taught are the truth. Theopolis, you can know with great certainty that the things you've been taught are true. Theopolis' faith is developing, much like some of you in the room. In fact, all of us, our faith, hopefully, is developing. And he, like us, many of us, are asking a question, what do I believe? What do I not believe? How do I know that this is anchored in fact? And how do I know that this isn't some fabrication or some kind of half-truth? And Luke is saying, hey man, I can assure you, I carefully investigated. I've talked to eyewitnesses so that you would know and you would now have a reason to believe so that you could find this account reliable. Luke was sitting down with people and he was asking them questions. Around 58 A.D., If Jesus had died around 30 A.D. and Luke is writing around 58 A.D., a bunch of people would still be around who were around when Jesus had been alive. If you'd been 20 years old when Jesus was alive and, and, you know, 30 years later, 28 years later, you'd be like in your late 40s. And so, you know, in in the book of Luke, we we read about the manger scene. And, And Luke tells us about how Joseph and Mary came into Bethlehem and they they had the baby and they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and they placed him in a manger. And then he concludes that story by saying, and Mary treasured all these things in her heart and pondered those things. How did he know that? Is it possible that Luke sat down and he talked to Mary and said, Mary, what was it like? You know, when when you found out you were going to have... Jesus, what was it? What did it, what did it feel like? What did you go through? Once you once he was born, what did, how did you act? What I mean, how did you respond to all of that? How did Luke know? Have to think that maybe he interviewed some people. I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke is all about telling the story, and he's all about telling the story with accuracy and dependability and reliability. I've done the research. I've carefully investigated. You will have seasons of doubt. You will have these times that you go through where you pass through this this uncertainty where you don't know. And he says, I want you to know, Theopolis, that you you can stand firm on the things that you've been taught. Now, I'm glad that Luke wrote what he wrote. I'm glad that he took the time to write his story because here's the truth. Without the gospel of Luke, we would not have the account of Jesus in the manger. That's the only place, Luke chapter 2, it's the only place where we find that. Without Luke, we do not have the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Without Luke, we do not have the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Without Luke, we do not have the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Without Acts and Luke writing the book of Acts, we don't ever come into con- we don't really meet Paul the way we know Paul. We don't understand him as Saul of Tarsus, the one who persecuted Christians. We don't really get to see firsthand how he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and went through a conversion experience. We're not told about Barnabas, how Barnabas came along and partnered with, with Saul to, and through his time when he's becoming Paul the Apostle. We would have no record of Paul's missionary journeys spelled out for us. It's all because of Luke's record, and it's all because of his detail. Now, here's where this message gets serendipitous, as far as I'm concerned. 
Because I just gave you all that stuff. But here's how I want to end this morning. I want to tell you about a man who lived from 1851 to 1939. His name was Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. Um, he was one of the leading archaeologists of his day. He was the chair of classical archaeology at Oxford University in England. He had multiple doctorates, and he was not a man of faith. Ramsey gets the opportunity to explore what would be known at the time as the Aegean region, particularly Turkey and Greece. And he's going to be able to take a team and archaeologically explore all of that region. Now, in the late 1800s, it was dotted with Turkish villages. It would have been very hard to know. It's, it's hard to know now, but it would have been very hard then to know where you go to try to dig up a city because these cities, after earthquakes have happened and fires have happened and sometimes people built other cities on top of them and sometimes the wind blows and just covers a, a, an abandoned city that was, you know, a biblical city, to try to figure out where there had been a Roman city that had been buried under mounds of dirt, good luck with that. I mean, you were going to have a hard time. So armed with some documents from the first century, some historical documents that talked about maybe some cities and where they might be, and also armed with a Bible that contained the book of Acts, which he did not believe was very accurate, he set out to go to the Aegean region to dig some things up. And what, we end, what he ended up with was something like this, where he started to say, oh, okay, here's Philippi, here's Thessalonica, and, 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 but when you start digging down and you start finding plaques and you start finding the gates of these old cities and you start finding things where old classical Greek is written on these things and you brush away the debris and, and words start to appear to you and you start to see things, there was an Amphipolis, a city called Amphipolis, Acts talked about it. Nobody else talked about it. There was a city named Apollonia. No, Apollonia is not Prince's girlfriend in Purple Rain, okay? There was a city called Apollonia. And everybody under 30 is going, what? What was that? There was a Thessalonica. There was a Philippi. There was an Apollonia. And Sir William Ramsey began to say, there is no way that somebody could have written this a couple of hundred years after it happened and given this kind of detail. There's no way. Beyond that, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts uses some peculiar technical language to describe certain uh, city officials. Uh, for instance, in Thessalonica, um, Acts makes reference, Luke make, makes reference to a polytarch. And, uh, you know, people were saying, well, there's no such thing as a polytarch. What's a polytarch? In Ephesus, Paul makes reference, Luke is talking about an Asiarch. And then in Cyprus, it says that they went to, Luke says they went to see the proconsul, a man named Sergius Paulus. In the 1800s, which is when um, Mr. Ramsey would have been doing all this, there was a great deal of skepticism about uh, the, the faith and about the truth of the, the veracity of the story of Jesus and, um, you know, they were using things, particularly coming out of Germany, they were using things like these, these technical words that get used in Acts, like polytarch and Asiarch and proconsul. And they start digging around, 
and they start bringing stuff out of the ground and they start wiping it away and they're reading the classical Greek on it. And what they learn is, is that in Thessalonica, there really was something called a polytarch. They get to Ephesus and they dig up some stuff and they start scraping it away and they really do refer to, in Ephesus, something called an Asiarch. They, they get to Cyprus and they realize, you know what, the status of Cyprus changed. And in the first century, they would not have had a governor. They would have had a proconsul. These are significant discoveries. So now, Sir William Ramsey comes to the conclusion that Luke wrote the book of Acts. And that Luke was an eyewitness and was giving his account of what he had discovered. And it, he said it was unparalleled in its historicity and its fact-finding. I want to leave you this morning with these two quotes from Mr. Ramsey. Now keep in mind, this is a brilliant, brilliant archaeologist who did not believe that the story of Acts could be counted on reliably. This is what he said. Further study of the book of Acts showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. One last quote. I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece meets Asia, where Greece and Asia met, and I found it here. Found it where? Found it in the book of Acts. He said, I set out to find all this stuff and all the things I took with me to do my job, all of them failed me. Do you know how he got through and found all those cities and knew where they were and knew where to go? The book of Acts. The book of Acts is what helped him get there. He said, I found it here. Listen, this morning, I cannot resolve all of your doubts this morning. Some of you have carried stuff in here, and, and there are doubts that arise in your mind. You're saying, Brett, help me with the problem of pain. I'm going through this pain. I don't understand it. It causes me not to believe in Jesus. Listen, sometimes I hear your story, and I understand that, that you're, you're left with just all-consuming doubt. I get that. And I'm not going to be able to address all that. But if you're here this morning and you're going through a season of doubt and you're looking for a toehold, just something to hang on to to say, just tell me it's real, I would tell you look no further than the book of Acts. Just know that there was a person who lived a hundred years ago who did not believe in the historical record called Acts until he went to that part of the country and the book of Acts showed him exactly where the cities were and he started to dig down into them and he discovered not only that there were cities there, but they used the same terminology that were used in that day and Acts was the only book talking like that. And he traveled the land and he found the accuracy and the reliability of the book of Acts at every turn to be historically solid. And he said, I found it here. Maybe that could be the toehold for you. Maybe that could be the thing that you reach out to in your moment of doubt and you say, you know what, I don't know a lot about a whole lot of things. But that sounds pretty solid to me. Luke says the material can be trusted. Luke says there is a reason to believe. Listen, you, you live in a world where it's hard to know what's right, it's hard to know what's true sometimes, we live in a world where we can be easily fooled. They can now take someone's picture, cut off the head, move it, and put it on a different body, 
and make you think that someone was someplace doing something that they shouldn't have been. I'm always amazed when I'm watching uh, ESPN and they tell me about a trade that just happened. Two baseball players have been traded, and I know that this player played for the Oakland A's, and the next thing they're doing is showing me the New York Yankees uniform on him. I'm like, how'd they do that? I mean, it looks real. We live in a world where it's hard to drill down and find truth. It's getting harder and harder all the time. So you start asking yourself, what can I really believe in? And I'm telling you that you can trust this Bible when you open it and you read it. Sir William Ramsey trusted it to find those cities in the Aegean region. You can trust it to find Christ into your heart. Let me pray over you this morning. Father, for the one who's walked in here this morning and their faith is a little weak. God, there's one of two things happening in the room this morning. People are either getting stronger in their faith or they're getting weaker in their faith. And I pray that this morning you're strengthening our faith. I pray this morning that as we walk out, we've got a little bit more foundation under us than we had walking in, and we can say there is reason for me to believe. I pray that we would look at the life of Paul and how he laid it on the line and how abused he was and to know that he didn't just do that for his health. He didn't just do that for kicks and jollies. He did that because he believed what he saw on that road to Damascus was the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And when we watch him get flogged and we watch him get beaten and we watch him shipwrecked and he tells us all these things that happen, Father, would it make an impression on us to say, you know what? Nobody does that for a lie. I can believe. I do not have to check my brain at the door. I can believe. Father, for the person that walked in on their last shred of faith this morning, I pray that you will renew it. I pray that you will strengthen them. I pray that they will leave stronger today than they came in the door. Father, we stand this morning under the canopy of your beautiful, gracious, wonderful love. And in these moments, we just stand to tell you that we are completely, completely in love with you. We worship you, Father. We adore you. You are amazing. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus.